Amen. Yeah. Hey everyone, it's good to see you tonight. Um, glad you guys all made it, despite the the room confusion. Uh, that was always interesting. Also, that door clicks a little bit, so I'm just going to name that. You can notice it. It's fine. It clicks a little bit. It's okay. Um, But like we say every week at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that means that uh, the worst person here and the best person here need the exact same thing. They need Jesus. Uh, The best person in the world is saved by Christ alone. The worst person in the world is saved by Christ alone. And that's what RUF is all about. I want to remind you about that every single week. Uh, And every semester in RUF, we go through a series. This semester, we've been going through one in the Apostles' Creed. Um, And I've said multiple times thus far this semester, the Apostles' Creed, it's kind of like the spark notes of the Christian faith. It's an ancient document uh, that kind of came together to summarize uh, what does the Bible fundamentally teach? What is the Christian faith? And our kind of idea this semester is that the Apostles' Creed, as a summary of the Christian faith, it tells us a better story. It tells us a story that accounts for our glory and accounts for our shame. It tells us a story that enables us to live with resilience in the present, and it gives us sure hope for the future. And thus far, we've covered uh, the first, I guess, stanza of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And now we're turning to look at what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Uh, just a small topic to cover, so it uh, shouldn't be too difficult to cover what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, but we're going to do this. We're going to try and tap, tackle this large topic just by looking at the introduction to the book of Hebrews, which Jackson just read for us. Uh, so a little background on the book of Hebrews. It is a New Testament letter uh, that was written to a congregation of people that most scholars think uh, they were primarily Jewish Christians. So Christians who had been raised in the Jewish faith and then had come to hear about Jesus and became Christians. Uh, Hence the title Hebrews, which is just another name for a Jewish person. Uh, So this letter was written to these people uh, because following Jesus for them made life a lot harder. It made life a lot harder. You can imagine if you're raised in one kind of religious system, and then you switch into another one at some point in your adult life, there's a lot of things that go along with that. A lot of uh, fracturing of relationships, a lot of strain that might have been difficult, It's also possible that in the early church, uh, being a Christian kind of carried a certain stigma to it. Like it was a new thing. We didn't really know how it was going to pan out. Whereas Judaism was an ancient thing, and it had a certain level of respect. So these people who have converted from Judaism to Christianity are kind of struggling with this tendency uh, to abandon Jesus. they're, They're kind of wanting to go back to their old way of living. And then this letter is written to encourage them in their faith, and it basically tells them this. tells them Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is better than the prophets. Essentially telling them Jesus is better than what you had when you were, when you were a, um, a believer in Judaism. Jesus is better than all of that. So uh, that's kind of the situation of the book. Uh, and you might be wondering, how does that relate to us? Like, I don't know that, that many of us could really identify with that situation kind of in a one-to-one way. Uh, we don't live in a culture that is uh, mostly Jewish. We're, I would say, predominantly Gentile as a culture, meaning non-Jewish. Uh, we live in a culture also that has a pretty broad freedom of religion. 
Um, I met a guy on campus a couple weeks ago who uh, was like a self-described pagan. He's like, I'm a pagan. And I was like, oh, I mean, good for you. I'm glad that you can say that without any sort of fear, but okay. That's just the place that we live in, where we have that sort of freedom to do that sort of thing. We also live in a wealthy culture where people have their basic needs met. But even though all this is true, I do think that there are pressures that make it difficult for us to follow Jesus, that make it difficult for us to hold on to Jesus. I want to get at it this way. Have you ever felt embarrassed to be a Christian? Or maybe if you're, if you're not sure if that's where you stand, have you ever felt embarrassed at considering the idea of becoming a Christian? Uh, maybe it's you were talking to a friend who's been deeply hurt by the church. Or maybe it's sitting in one of your classes and having a professor uh, talk very honestly about the things that the church has done wrong throughout the ages. Uh, maybe you've been reading about the latest abuse of power scandal in a megachurch. Maybe you've been reading stories of victim blaming to protect powerful Christian leaders. I just, I think this is something that a lot of us can relate to. I know I can. Sometimes it's, it's kind of it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. And, and I wonder if as we feel maybe a little bit embarrassed to be a Christian from time to time, do you ever feel like it might be easier to just say, like, forget it? Like, what if I just said, forget being a Christian, you know? Would that make all the tension points in my life go away? Would that make it easier uh, to relate to my other than Christian friends if I didn't have this massive identity as a Christian that I carried around all the time? Would it make it? Uh, would it make my gnawing like guilt go away if I just let go of Jesus? Uh, would it, it? It might be nice, we think, to not be constantly like the one who's being lumped in with all the weirdos. Like when you tell people that you're a Christian, they automatically assume you're like the worst kind of Christian. And wouldn't it be nice not to just have that happen? So I think just like the audience of this letter, I think we're tempted to abandon Jesus in favor of what is culturally comfortable and relationally advantageous. I'll say that again. We, we are tempted to abandon Jesus in favor of what is culturally comfortable and relationally advantageous. So what help can there be for us? What help can be for us when there's all this temptation to fall away, when there's this temptation to kind of just go a different way? So tonight, I just want to consider something that's really basic that I think could be helpful for us. I want to consider what it means when the creed says that Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord. And my hope is, as we look at Jesus, as we look at Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus is better. As we look at Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus is worth holding on to, and we're going to see that Jesus is actually holding on to us. And I just want to submit to you that I think Jesus is the best candidate for the most central voice in your life. So that's what we're going to kind of try and do, and we're going to get at that just by looking at these three titles that the Creed gives to Jesus. It says he is the Christ, says he is the only Son of God, and it says he is our Lord. So I'm going to pause and pray for us real quick, and then we can get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for this time that we can be together and can consider um, what it means uh, that Jesus, you are the Christ, that you are the only Son of God, um, Lord, that you are our Lord. Um, these are things that, if we've been raised in the church, they might just be so um, rote. We've said it a billion times that it, we don't really even know what it means. Um, and then for others of us, uh, we just truly, honestly, don't know what this sort of thing means. So I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, 
that you would help us to see Jesus clearly um, and to come away from that changed. Um, I do pray for all of our uh, friends on campus who are struggling in the depths of a chem exam right now. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, that you would call to mind the things that they have studied, um, and Lord, that you would just enable them to, to persevere. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first off, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Um, I love The Office, so there's always a quote from The Office that comes to my mind first time whenever I think about anything. I don't know if you've seen the Secret Santa episode. Uh, Michael wants to dress up like Santa Claus, but Phyllis dresses up like Santa Claus, so there are two Santa Clauses. And so Michael pitches a fit, goes into his office, flips his jacket inside out, it's all white, has like a white beard, and dresses up as Jesus Christ. Because how do you one-up Santa Claus? You dress up as Jesus Christ on, on, uh, on Christmas. And so he's really mad. He's kind of fuming in his office, and he calls his boss, and he says, guess who I'm dressed up as? And his boss says, I, I don't want to guess. And he says this. He says, I'll give you a hint. His last name is Christ. He has the power of flight, and he can heal leopards. Um, Michael clearly has some confusing ideas about who Jesus is. Uh, but these sorts of things that he says, I don't think that they're way off when we think about what it means that Jesus is the Christ. Like, is that just his last name? Like, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? I think we see this in our passage. Uh, let's look at verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, so this verse here is just kind of a summary of the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, if you were around last year, uh, we went through a series called Every Story Whispers His Name. It's all about the Old Testament and how it always talks about Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying that in many different times and in many different places, the prophets, uh, whether it was you know Moses or the prophets being spoken to in dreams, the Old Testament is kind of this conglomerate of these different voices coming from different places who God spoke to in different ways. And it comes together and it tells a unified story. But it's, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, the way that it goes together sometimes. It was written at various times for various people. So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then verse 2 says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Uh, what does it mean by these last days? What does it mean that the author of Hebrews is referring to this time as the last days? Um, last days is a term from the Hebrew Bible that signifies kind of a coming age of judgment, a coming age when God was going to break into the world and he was going to make everything right. He was going to punish the evildoers. He was going to save his people. And over time throughout the Old Testament, this age became associated with a figure. This figure was called the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah was the Hebrew word for it. The Greek word was Christos, which means Christ. So this, this person, this Christ, was one who Moses describes as a serpent crusher. He's going to be the one who crushes the snake that we see in Genesis 1 through 3. Then Isaiah later describes him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he also describes him as a suffering servant who will die for the sins of his people and will rise in triumph. This is what it means to be the Christ. Uh, so the author of Hebrews, what's he doing here? Let's try and put all that together. He is saying in no uncertain terms, Jesus is the Christ. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, and he's saying that he is the one that the, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, taught you to look for. His name is whispered all throughout the Old Testament story. 
But he's saying more than that, I think. What Jesus is telling them is that the things that they are tempted to go back to, what they're looking for, they're looking for comfort. They're looking for cultural prominence by not being Christians anymore. Jesus is saying that the things that you're looking for, you're not going to find anywhere other than Jesus. Jesus is actually what you're looking for. They think Jesus is the problem. What he's telling them is that Jesus is the solution. He's telling them that the thing that they are actually longing for is Jesus, not comfort. The thing that they are longing for is not a lack of strain in their relationships. It's Jesus. The thing that they're longing for is not financial security, not cultural prominence. It is Jesus. What's being said here, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, what we mean is that Jesus is the solid reality behind all legitimate human longings. Jesus is the solid reality behind all legitimate human longings. He is what we're looking for. Jesus is it. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie Zoolander. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> um, great movie. You might have heard me tell this story before, but uh, if you haven't seen the movie, Derek Zoolander is a male model, and he's really dumb. That's kind of the, the point of the whole movie. He's just really dumb. And Mugatu, who is the bad guy, is trying to trick Derek Zoolander into working for him. And so he knows that Derek's dream is to have this uh, children's center built. I believe it's called the children who can't read good and want to learn how to do other stuff too. <laughs> center. Um, and so Mugatu says, okay, I'm just going to draw this up. I'm going to have someone build a model. And I'm going to show him this model and say, if he works for me, then, then I'll build this for him. And so in the scene, uh, Derek comes into the room and you see this, this beautiful architectural model. And he's like trying to convince him to work for him. He says, look, like I will build this if you, you know, if you work for me. Derek, I remember he's really dumb, comes up to the model, looks at it, and then looks back and like kind of pauses for a beat and then like flips it over. And he says, what is this, a center for ants? It needs to be at least three times this big. <laughs> if you don't pick up on it, the joke is Derek is so dumb that he thought the tiny little model was the thing that Mugatu was going to build for him. What I want you to see is that our longings, our longings for comfort, our longings for security, all of that stuff, what they really are is a center for ants. They're a center for ants. They're just, they're, they're a little taste of the real reality. You see, Jesus is the solid reality that we're looking for. And the implications of this are huge. Uh, what we're looking for when we're sad is Jesus. What we're looking for when we're stressed out is Jesus. Much more to be said on that, but I'll just stop there and we'll just keep going. All right, so second, Jesus is the only Son of God. Jesus is the only Son of God. So we've already seen a little bit in verse 1 that uh, God has now spoken to us by his Son, who is Jesus. Uh, what does it mean that Jesus is God's Son? Uh, again, another Michael Scott quote. Uh, he says, Is there a God? If not, what are all these churches for? And who is Jesus' dad? Um, another great quote. See, when we talk about Jesus as God's son, is that just what we mean? That God, you know, God is his dad. Is that what we mean? I think when we're talking about Jesus as God's son, we mean at least two things. Uh, and this might get a little bit heady for a second, but just stick with me. I'll try and land the plane at the end. So, first, it means that God is the, or it means that Jesus is the messianic son of God. He's the messianic son of God. Uh, we see this in verse 2. It says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. So we see that there was a moment in time that Jesus, the human being, the man, was anointed. He was appointed to be the heir of all things. So there was a point where he did not have this status, and he was given this status at a moment in time. God declared him to be his son. And when we say that Jesus is God's son, it isn't necessarily referring to like bloodlines. We're not talking like DNA here. We're not talking a family tree. We're talking about a son as the inheritor. In the ancient world, that's what it meant to be a son. You were the inheritor of your father's estate. And so Jesus, the human being, was declared to be the inheritor of God the Father's creation. He was the heir of all things. This is what it means that Jesus is the messianic son of God. He is the heir of all that is. He is the representative of God in the world, the perfect image of God. So that's he's the messianic son of God. But second, he's the divine son of God. He's the divine son of God. Uh, so while Jesus was appointed as, he was appointed heir as Messiah, we see that it happened at a moment in time. We also see that he created the world. See in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is God-like language being applied to Jesus. And you know why? Because Jesus is God. So there's a sense in which uh, Jesus became the Son of God as the Messiah, but he also already was the Son of God as God himself. He eternally pre-existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit. His status as the divine son was something was not something that was bestowed upon him he simply is it this is what i think it means by the radiance of the glory of god he is a a beautiful display of who god is that's what jesus is and then when it says the exact imprint of his nature in the greek these words are are almost always used to describe kind of like a mint that is used to make a coin it's an exact imprint it, it's like an authoritative image. That's who Jesus is. And then it says that he upholds the universe. Again, to say it simply, he is God. The same in substance, equal in power, and in glory. So Jesus is the messianic son of God and the divine son of God. I promise I'm going to try to land the plane. Why does this matter for us? Why does this matter? Uh, so Molly and I recently um, got back from a trip to Connecticut. It's why Treat Tuesday happened on Wednesday <laughs> this last week. So thanks for your patience with that. Um, but all of our flights got completely messed up on the way back from uh, visiting Molly's family. And uh, so I was trying to hold on to Louise as we were at the airport, and Molly was talking to um, the, the Southwest Airlines representative and she ended up booking us into a new flight, and Molly somehow like sweet-talked her into giving us priority boarding in all of the, um, the next flights that we had, uh, which is always a cool thing because it means you get to go on the plane first. But it's especially a cool thing when you have a one-year-old because it means you can get the best seats, the ones that have the extra space, the ones that are close to the bathroom, all the important things when you have a one-year-old. And so this priority boarding uh, was given to us, and it, it was super clutch, but the thing that I noticed was the priority boarding was marked on Molly's ticket, but not on mine. It was on Molly's ticket, but not on mine. And the lady told her that like, oh, he's fine to come in on priority boarding as long as he's with you, as long as he's with you. And so when we went through, I was kind of like tentative. I was like, I'm, I'm with her the whole time. And sure enough, they let me through and we were able to get on the plane and have this amazing priority boarding. 
So what I want you to see here is that Jesus's status as the divine son of God, as the messianic son of God, it gives us something like priority boarding with God the Father. It gives us unique access to God because of who Jesus is. Jesus, the only son of God, mysteriously somehow ushers us into the life of the triune God. This is kind of like it's cosmic priority boarding. Like that's what we're given. We're able to enjoy this status as co-heirs with Christ. Whatever is Jesus's is ours. Through faith in Jesus, we are united to him, and God the Father looks upon you as not only his child, but as his royal child, as his heir. And this is a status that has nothing to do with what you've done, has nothing to do with what you've left undone. It has everything to do with who you're united to has everything to do with Jesus. Your sin can't disqualify you. Your goodness can't improve on it. It's it's a status that is given to us with complete security. And I wonder, what would it feel like if you were to rest in this? What would it feel like if that were to kind of sink into your bones? I mean, thinking about your your work or your schoolwork, it, it it would become an opportunity to learn and not to prove your worth. If you're secure in Jesus, then you don't need the affirmation of your teachers. You're able to just learn. You're able to focus on, I don't need to get an A. I can get a C and I can actually learn. And you think about friendship. Friendship can become an opportunity to know and to be known, not a way to enter into the world so hungry for affirmation that you end up exhausting yourself and other people. Because you have all of the affirmation you could ever want through Jesus. So Jesus is the only Son of God. But then third and finally, um, and hopefully quickly, I just want to look at Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. Uh, So what does it mean that Jesus is our Lord? Uh, We've talked about the word Lord a couple times this semester. So Lord can be referring to the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. It can also just be shorthand kind of for a king. And I think both are implied here. to be a king like this in the ancient world, uh, this would have been a title that Caesar, the king, would have referred to himself as. Uh, the Greek word there is kurios, and he would have said that he is a kurios. But the, the kind of the battle cry of the early Christians was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is kurios. And we see this throughout the passage. I think it means two kind of specific things that Jesus is Lord. I think first it means that he is powerful. He's powerful. We've seen this throughout. Uh, Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one who spoke the universe into existence, and he's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That takes a lot of power. Uh, We see in verse 3 that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated in a heavenly throne. There's a lot of power there. But I think the question needs to be asked, like, how did he ascend to this divine throne? I think there's something in our passage here that is really unique. How did he ascend to this high throne? We see it in verse 3 as well. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus did not ascend to the throne through some sort of like nepotism or anything like that, or just through bloodline. It was through his messianic work. It was through his suffering that he ascended to the throne. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Shrek 
Uh, Lord Farquaad on there is kind of like the worst king ever, but his saying, some of you may die, and that is a risk I'm willing to take. Jesus is nothing like that. He is the opposite of that. Jesus is a king who puts himself in harm's way for his people. He made, he, he, before sitting down and, and taking his throne in heaven, he made purification for sins. How did he do that? He did that by going to the cross. He went to the cross and took the, the penalty for our sins. He was the sacrifice. He put himself in harm's way so that we could be brought to the throne of God. Um, I don't know if you have any scenes in movies that kind of like give you chills every time you see them. Uh, for me, about 95% of those come from The Lord of the Rings. Um, I just love those movies. I was raised on them. They just speak to me on a deep level. Uh, but one of my favorite scenes comes in The Return of the King. Uh, it's kind of the, the final battle. Um, and, you know, it's all the forces of good against all the forces of evil. They're outside the gates of Mordor. Uh, it's not going to end well for the good people. Like, everybody's going to die is what it looks like. And you have Aragorn, who is kind of the new king who has come up. He's the king of Gondor. He's returned. And, and you know, everybody is kind of following behind him. And they're completely surrounded. Everyone's going to die. They know it. There's no chance. And what does he do? He looks back and he says, for Frodo. And then he runs straight towards the enemy, right towards certain death. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus is the king who runs straight towards the enemy, even if it means certain death. And why does he do that? He does it for you. He does it so that he can defeat the things that threaten you. You see, in his life, Jesus ran straight into a sin-sick world. He didn't have to do that. He ran into a world where he would have friends who would die. He ran into a world where he would be betrayed. He ran into a world where he would be abandoned and misunderstood. A world where he would be wrongfully accused, where he would suffer an unjust death. And if you're anything like me, this, this doesn't sound like the behavior of a king. But that's because Jesus isn't an ordinary king. He's a different kind of king. He's a king who fights for his people, even if that means being killed by those very people. Jesus did it gladly because that's the sort of king he is. So we've seen tonight uh, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the solid reality behind all legitimate human longings. He's what we're looking for. We've seen also that he is God's only son. He is the human divine son of God who gives us kind of this priority access to God. And we've seen also that he is Lord. He is a king who makes war against sin for us. And I just want to—I just want you to see, uh, there really is no one like Jesus. There really isn't. Like if you just look at him, he's so confusing. He's gentle and lowly, and yet he is high and exalted. He is kind, like astonishingly kind, and yet so challenging. He is holy, like in a way that's scary to behold sometimes, and yet the most approachable person who's ever lived. He's the one you're looking for. He's the greatest security you could ever find, and he is the king who would lay down his life for you. And I just want to ask you to try this on. Uh, I just want you to ask, what would, what would it be like if this was the most central voice in your life, if Jesus' voice was the most central voice in your life? I don't know what voices it is that you're listening to. Uh, maybe it's, you know, a teacher, professor, a significant other, or maybe your own inner dialogue or a therapist or something like that. 
And what I want to submit to you is that I think Jesus is the single most important voice that you can listen to. And I think Jesus will be kind to you in ways you couldn't imagine. And Jesus will challenge you in love. And Jesus will love you to the end. Let's pray.